We had a wonderful time last night at the Seder meal, and after we were done eating, I was thanking uh, Sheila Ward and, and talking with her for a while, and we were talking about how amazing it is that all of these things had been fulfilled so many ages after they were mandated by God, and how you just, you couldn't make that up, that it fits so hand in glove, that, that it's such a, a comfort and such a teaching tool, and, and how amazing it was that, that you find Jesus in the Old Testament. And you know, to properly understand the Bible, of course, we do see that the whole Old Testament's pointing forward to the cross, and the whole New Testament's pointing backward to the cross. And that the cross itself, what we commemorate today on Good Friday, is the, the high point toward which the whole Bible had been building and building and building. And for that reason, every little thing, every detail, everything about it is just pregnant with meaning, with theological meaning, with layers and layers of fulfillment and beauty. And I have done many sermons on, on the cross that sort of fly over and just broadly look at all of the elements and touch on each one. But, but today I want to kind of drill down and look closely at one element here. And it's the passage that Lisa just read for us and, and what it is fulfilling from the Old Testament. Of course, she read from John 19, uh, 31 to 35. Let me read just a little bit of it again. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. And then John sort of breaks the fourth wall like a, like a television actor looking at the camera in verse 35 and says, He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. This little detail is important to John, and therefore it should be important to us that Jesus, after he died, his side was pierced with a lance, and that blood and water poured out. And this has been throughout church history a significant detail. St. Thomas Aquinas wrote, And so we see that in the death there is birth. Through John's mention of the blood and water, we are able to understand so much of what was foretold and how we too participate in Christ's death so that we might be cleansed from sin. And when we talk about layers of meaning, we ought to think first and foremost of John. It's been said of John's gospel that it's, it's so shallow that any child... Any new convert, even a non-believer can open and read it and understand it. You won't drown in it. It's, it's shallow enough to wade out into the waters. That's why we often will hand out a gospel of John to somebody on the street. But it's also at the same time so deep that the deepest of theologians and thinkers cannot reach the bottom because it is so full of meaning. And I wonder if it's okay with you today if I kind of go a little bit deep. This is a day that we talk about the depth of God's love and I think it's important to look deep at what is going on here. And why does it matter that blood and water came out of the side of our Lord Jesus? Well, first and foremost, and most simply, it shows that he's dead. This, this is why the centurion would have, would have put his lance into the body 
of Christ. Now, I've read an awful lot about Jesus' death and the kind of the medical aspects of it, and it is an awful lot because it's an awful thing. I'm not a doctor, I'm not a nurse, but I know enough to know this is horrible stuff. That when you hang on a cross, a criminal would, would be spiked here and here, and then also through the feet, and they would hang down and not be able to breathe. Only little shallow breaths could you take. And then over time, carbon dioxide would build up inside you. And so what would happen is after a while, you'd need that deep breath. And they would pull up with the spikes going in their palm and out their wrist. And with the spikes going through their feet, they'd pull up through excruciating pain and breathe in one big deep breath and then fall back down. And people could do that for days and days and linger on the cross. Realize at any moment, he could have called on 10,000 angels and it would have stopped. But he didn't because he loves us. And he hung there. And think about this too. Remember we preached on the seven last words of Christ from the cross? When you talk, you're breathing out. Every time he chose to say something, woman, behold your son, man, behold your mother, into your hands, every one of those things required another one of those lifts up in all the pain that comes with it. And so after a long time, the Pharisees and the Sadducees started to get worried. You know, tomorrow's a Sabbath. We can't have these, these men on the cross. And that would, that would be right. So go and break their legs. Once they break the legs, you can't push up anymore. And death comes more quickly. In fact, it was thought of kind of as a mercy for those people. And they went and broke one man's legs and broke the other man's legs and came to Jesus. And he had already given up his spirit. And he was already dead. In fact, his death kind of surprised Pilate, it seems. But they weren't taking any chances. These are professional killers. These are the best killers you can get. And they know, if this guy doesn't die, I die for failing to make sure that he's been put to death. And so, he takes the spear and puts it into this man's side. And what comes out is blood and water. Now, my understanding is that this, this shows that this man was good at his work. Because when you plunge up into the side, you're going to get blood no matter what. But his goal is to hit the heart. And around the heart, there's this thing called the pericardial sac. Now, I'm not a doctor, but I know most medical terms because they're Greek, and we study Greek in seminary. Pericardials means around the heart. And in that sac is this stuff called pericardial fluid. You see the blood and the water or the fluid come out, you say, I've hit the heart, and this guy is definitely dead. Jesus, you know, you hear people say, Jesus just swooned on the cross, and they put him in the grave, and then he woke up, even though, you know, he'd been flogged open and lost half his blood and was just beaten and he, he came back and rolled the stone away and all this nonsense. No, this man was dead. And he had begun assuming room temperature already. That's why the centurion did it. But why did John highlight it? First of all, he tells us this to fulfill prophecy. To, to fulfill prophecy. He points us back to Zechariah 12.10, which Lisa also read for us, where, where there's this picture of this mysterious shepherd figure who is pierced. And, and over time, long before Jesus came on the scene, this became associated with the Messiah, who would come and save Israel. And it says, I will pour out the, uh, on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and, and for mercy, so that when they look on him, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. As one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. John tells us this is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the man, the one who was pierced. He fits all the criteria. He was pierced. He was from the lineage of David. He was a firstborn and only child. 
the only begotten, the one and only Son of God, and he's mourned over by the one who pierces him, who after after his death, when the earthquake comes, and, and all of the supernatural stuff that, that goes along with the death of Christ, looks up at this man and says, surely this was the Son of God. Not only that prophecy, but there's also this prophecy in verse 36 that he points out. John says, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And, and many a skeptic over the ages has said, well, where's that prophecy? We don't find us made up. That's not You've got to understand again how the Old Testament, all of it, is pointing us forward to the cross. We do find this in Scripture, Exodus 12, 46, and it has everything to do with what we were doing last night at the Seder, where we read about how to prepare the Passover lamb. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. Because this lamb had to be without spot or blemish, foreshadowing that Christ would come and be without any sin, even though he's tempted in all ways as we are tempted. And, and no bone broken. Christ came and he was for us, our Passover lamb. He fulfilled that, that prophecy. But let me go a little deeper, and I promise I won't take you to the area of just allegory and speculation. But the, the early church, the church fathers saw more in this. Origen wrote, that the pierced side was a sign of spousal love. That, quote, Christ has flooded the universe with divine and sanctifying waves. For the thirsty, he sends a spring of living water from the wound which the spear opened in his side. From the wound in Christ's side has come forth the church, and he has made her his bride. And you might hear that and say, what? So he's pierced in the side, and, and these guys say, and of course, out of that wound is born the church. Well, again, remember how the whole thing's pointing forward all the way back from the beginning of Genesis. You know, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about the first Adam, Adam, and then the second Adam, the last Adam, Christ. And how the first Adam was a representative for all mankind. You know, we don't have any Methodists here this year. I don't have to worry about talking about this stuff. We all, we're all on the same page. And as a representative of all mankind, he sinned, and in him we all sinned. And then the second Adam, also a representative. And in him we are all righteous. And, and understanding that then, we look at how Jesus, throughout his ministry, in his parables and in other ways, he, he refers to himself as the bridegroom. All the way up through the end uh, when John is writing, again, it's John writing Revelation about the, the bridegroom and the bride and the, and the wedding feast of the Lamb and all of this stuff. And this Jesus, the second Adam, is the counterpart to the first Adam, the first bridegroom. There's not one before him. He's the first one. And we think about what we read in Genesis 2. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And you're thinking, I see where you're going, preacher, but it doesn't say anything in the text about Jesus' ribs coming out, even though in the Passion of the Christ, horrifically, you could sort of see his ribs. It's not in the text. But recognize that to woodenly translate the Hebrew there, it says that he took his side and made a woman and closed up his side. We have this picture of the first Adam being put to sleep, and while sleeping, God opens his side, and then out of his side comes his bride, and God closes up his side. The significance of this sleeping man, then, is clear. In the New Testament, those who fall asleep are who? Those who are, are dead. 
Matthew tells us that after Jesus died, the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints that had fallen asleep were raised. St. Augustine then looks at this and puts it all together. He finds it very noteworthy. That even though this is fulfilling Zechariah 12 about looking upon the one whom they pierced, the word that John uses for pierced is a different word. It, it more references the idea of opening up. Opening up and out of that side coming a bride for this Jesus. In fact, he, he writes this, This second Adam bowed his head and fell asleep on the cross that a spouse might be formed for him from that which flowed from the sleeper's side. O death, whereby the dead are raised anew to life. What can be purer than such blood? What more health-giving than such a wound? So he, he came to bring new birth, birth from death. But more than that, he came to bring a new era. And what's beautiful to me is, I mean, this is the, the line between the old and the new, even in how the world, they want to say it's, it's 200, uh, not BC anymore, a BCE. And I'm like, well, wait, what's the, what's, what's the E? Well, well, that's when Jesus lived. We split time with this. We go from the Old Testament to the New Testament, two eras, two ways of God interacting with us. And, and it's significant to me that this all takes place right at the center, the very center of the old era. Not, not only in space right there in Jerusalem, but in time, right at the time of the Passover. This is when and where God and man come together. And there's that veil keeping mankind back from the presence of God for mankind's own protection. And when Jesus dies, the veil is torn in two. And now the way is open. And you might read that and say, wait a minute, there's no temple now? No, no, no way to go. No, it's not that there's no temple. It's that there's a new temple. Now, now follow me close here because this gets, this gets a little bit, a little bit out there, I'll admit. This is one where John would have known and seen this, and maybe his, his Gentile readers wouldn't have, but his fellow Jews would have absolutely known. What, why he stopped and said, I saw this with my own eyes. Because there was a temple, and, and we read in some of these sources like the Mishnah that in the first century, in that temple, there were many sacrifices every day, especially on Passover. Josephus says 200,000 lambs. In one day, thank God we don't live in that age anymore, that we have our once-for-all sacrifice. I don't know if I could deal with all of that, all of that blood, but because there were so many sacrifices and so much blood, there was a drain in the southwest corner of the altar. And that drain would take the blood, and it used to run down and mingle in the water channel and flow out into the brook Kidron. So as you approached the Temple Mount on your way into the city, to celebrate Passover, out of the side of the Temple Mount would be flowing blood and water mixed. And John stops and says, out of the side of this Jesus, blood and water flowed out. I really saw it. He who bore witness knows it is the truth. Jesus had said, destroy this temple, I'll build it up again in three days. And John tells us the temple he meant was his body. Jesus himself is the new temple. What's the altar then? It's the altar of his heart. Pierced so that blood and water flowed out. 
out of his heart, John saw the overflow of what was inside this man, inside the Son of God. And what it was, was love. Love for us. In him now we approach God. We don't have to go to some, I love these buildings that we have, but they're not our temple. Christ is, and we then are the temple because we are in Christ. What beautiful imagery we see when we look closely at these things. Hebrews said he's our high priest, and at the same time, he's the sacrifice being offered. He's the fulfillment of all. He's our all in all. So there's new birth. There's a new era, and with it comes new rites. No more sacrifice and sacrifice, just a commemoration of that once-for-all sacrifice that already has taken place. Again, the church fathers, St. Chrysostom, St. Augustine, Chrysostom wrote this. He said, they saw in this, they saw the sacraments being foreshadowed. And St. Chrysostom writes this, There flowed from his side water and blood. Beloved, do not pass over this mystery without thought, which I will explain to you another meaning. I said that water and blood symbolized baptism, water, and holy communion, blood. From these two sacraments, the church is born. From baptism, the cleansing water that gives rebirth and renewal through the Holy Spirit and from the Holy Eucharist. As a woman nourishes her child with her own blood and milk, so does Christ unceasingly nourish with his own blood those to whom he himself has given life. And then later, Aquinas, a thousand years later, writes the same thing, thinking, I think, that he came up with it. And you know, when you look at, at, from ancient times, the way that communion's been prepared, now we use Welch's. I don't know if you guys use Welch's, but between you and me, I think it's kind of a shame, but it is what it is. Uh, But because there's so much meaning and and metaphor in, in the wine itself. But from ancient times, when a priest prepared the wine during the liturgy, he would pour water in along with it and mix them together, commemorating that this water and blood came from the side of Christ. But most of all, yes, there's new era, yes, there's new rites, but most of all, there is new life. That Zechariah passage that John references, it ends with these words, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, excuse me, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. So this, this is a fulfillment of the opening of a fount that would cleanse all mankind, God's people. And I think about, I don't know who saw The Passion of the Christ when it, when it came out or since then. I, I remember watching that and at, at the point where, where the, the soldier pierced the side of Christ, instead of the little trickle that you often see in the art, it was like this geyser, this explosion. And it blew right in the face of the soldier. And he dropped his spear and he fell to his knees and just stayed there as this poured down on him. And at the time, I remember thinking, ugh, that's a little much. That's a little gory. That's what, Why? Why did they do it? And then after reading this passage again, I thought, no, even if that's not, I don't know if it's medically accurate, Lisa, but it's spiritually accurate. That this is what is happening. There is a fountain that cleanses. And John... This, this guy who writes stuff that's so shallow, no one can drown in it, so deep, no one can reach the bottom. He again and again references this. A few chapters earlier, he's talking about Monday, Thursday, and Jesus washing, cleansing the feet of his disciples, and Peter pulls his back. Oh no, you won't wash me. And Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. I've got to wash you. And go all the way to the end, John writes Revelation. In Revelation 7, we read about the saints who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. 
In his epistle, 1 John, in, in chapter 1, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. Think of that great hymn of the faith, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let thy the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be for me the double cure. Save from wrath and make me whole. Yes, yes, he has wrath against sin. Our God has wrath and our God is love. He has wrath against sin, and yet he bore that wrath. We, we were just going through 2 Corinthians uh, in the last few weeks, got to that passage about God in Christ reconciling the world to himself. There's this, there's this horrible caricature the world will have. Well, your God is all angry, and he's got he's to do something, and so he'll even turn his anger on his own son like an abusive father. No, read it with the whole thing pointed forward to the cross. God is love. So much so that he came down and dwelt amongst us and paid the penalty for our sin. Peter gets in on this too. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. You know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, right? So, Big deal, silver and gold. Not with those things, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And as his love overflowed from his heart, so his love overflows from our hearts as well. This new life will not be contained. And so we don't leave here going, well, Good Friday, that was wonderful. We heard about what Jesus did and how it benefits us and that's that. No, it pushes us out. To share that love, for it to overflow from our hearts. In fact, hey, let's let's quote John some more. John 7, 38, Jesus says, He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. If you believe in Jesus, out of his heart flew, uh, flowed that, that geyser of love, that, that fountain that cleanses. Well, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, John says, which those who believed in him were to receive. And in 1 John 5, he says, there are three witnesses, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree. You have the Holy Spirit. You've been washed in the blood. You have the water and the blood. That, and you know what? These witnesses agree, and they will agree in us if we have been washed. There will be real change in us, in our hearts, in our lives, in our minds. So there is a new era, and with it comes new access to God, and there is a new life that we have for Him. And as we leave this place, we don't need to go and scurry off to an upper room and hide because we don't know how the story ends like the disciples did. We know how it ends. It ends with an empty tomb. It ends with Pentecost and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, and it ultimately will end with the return of Jesus Christ. And looking back at the cross and looking forward to that second coming, we go out and say, Lord, through me, let that, let that fountain continue to flow. Wash me and let me live out and overflow with your love so the world will see their need for Jesus Christ.